If you're there already, turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. Continue looking at God's Word and this process of transformation that we are all called to be in as believers. All right, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And let's go ahead and let's read those together. If uh, you're new, uh, most of us read out of the uh, NIV version, copyright 1984. Um, if you have different versions, that's fine too. But if you're wondering, that's, that's the version that we read out of uh, here. So Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's read it out loud together once again. Ready? Begin. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Father, thank you once again for your word. And Lord, we have been laser focused the last few weeks, understanding that transformation, supernatural metamorphosis, happens primarily through the renewing of our minds. We thank you. 1 Corinthians 2, we have learned that we have been given the mind of Christ. Therefore, we're able to understand spiritual truths. We're able to understand life through your perspective. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminates us, helps us to understand, brings application. And then, Father, we've seen that a renewed mind is to have practical application into our lives. It's not just more head knowledge. It's not information. It's transformation that you are after. And so once again, this morning, our desire is that you would speak truth to us. Father, that what we hear, we would then do. And in the combination of hearing and doing, we would be transformed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So we love you. We love your word. And ask you now through your Holy Spirit to speak truth and bring application to each one of us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. So let's jump over to 2 Corinthians, a couple books to your right. And we use this statement from the Apostle Paul as a launching pad into focusing on our minds. Right, so we're transformed. We're in metamorphosis. You know, it was really cool. Robert this past week actually brought in a little. What's the official term for that? Chrysalis, a little cocoon. He brought in a, 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 a chrysalis, a cocoon. Was it? It was on Thursday night, right? Sunday. Oh, last Sunday at your house. Last Sunday at your house, he had one, and we didn't even know if it was still vibrant. Anything was happening in there. All you saw was a cocoon. And what happened? When was it? Mm-hmm. 
Awesome. Right? So, here, so there it is, right? We, we put that slide up of all the different stages of the caterpillar to the, to the butterfly, but he gets a living example uh, in a week's time of metamorphosis. And that is what we are called to be in. Metamorphosis, right? And, and in relation to Holy Week, right? Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter. Sometimes it's this week that if, we're, if we can take the time to really reflect on it, we're, oh, wait, yeah, this is supernatural, Something supernatural happened, right? And, and that can be a bridge to us asking ourselves, well, how much of my daily life do I see as supernatural? Do I walk in the Spirit? How much of my daily life do I recognize as part of a supernatural metamorphosis that is supposed to be happening in me, right? That word metamorphosis is the same word as transfiguration, so you remember when Jesus took his boys up the mountain and he was transfigured, right? What happened was who he was inside was let go. What his, what his core boys saw when Jesus was transfigured and his glory came out was what was already inside. That same word is what he says for us. He says, hey, you're a new creation. You've been given a new heart. You have a new nature. The Holy Spirit indwells you in this metamorphosis that we're to be in as believers Simply let Christ out. Now, how many of us flip that and just try to be really good? And just slide, you know, being a Christian into a bunch of external behaviors and a bunch of external do's and don'ts. And we keep scorecards and checklists instead of really, literally, supernatural metamorphosis, let Jesus out. Isn't that much more freeing? Doesn't that put more of a, oh, okay, I want to do that. Because quite honestly, how many of us, if we're really focused and diligent and trying to be a really good Christian, how many of us find that exhausting at times? Exhausting. How many of us find ourselves beating ourselves up a lot of times? Right? And we ride a roller coaster. If we're doing really good on the checklist, got a spring in our step on Sunday morning. If we blew it during the week, hi, Pastor. How are you? Good. How was your week? Fine. Right? And we ride these roller coasters because if we're not careful, we get caught up in this external behavior checklist scale thing when all along metamorphosis is walking in the spirit being transformed from the inside out. Right? And so in 2 Corinthians 5, right, we looked at this, 514 the Apostle Paul shared with us his motive, what compelled him in his ministry, in his life. It says says, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14, For Christ's love compels us. And we were challenged that week. What compels you this morning? What compels you in your life when you wake up in the morning? Is it God's love for you? When was the last time you spent enough time and you were just so overwhelmed by the love of Christ that you just said, oh, Lord, I love you. I'm yours. When was the last time that happened? You, you, you got quiet. You listened to praise music. You, you got away. Maybe went on a retreat. Maybe just on your drive to work. Maybe in your, in your room, wherever you pray. And you said, Lord, would you just overwhelm me with your love? Would you just remind me today? And a song came on and you started reading the Psalms or something. And the love of God, you're like, oh, God, you love me that much? I love you. 
Anyone? Okay, a few. For the rest of it, oh, Lord, another day. Help me not to mess up so bad. Right? What would happen in our quiet times if we allowed Christ's love for us to dominate our quiet time? It would probably change our perspective on our to-do list for the rest of the day. It would probably change our emotion as we look forward to the rest of the day. And so Paul says, Christ's love, Christ's love for me, not my love for him, Christ's love for me compels me. And that's why I love Holy Week, whether it's today, whether it's Good Friday, Easter. This is a great week to call time out on the busyness of your schedule and your routine and say, maybe this week, one week out of 52, Lord, every day, I want to focus on your love for me. Because Scripture says we love Him because what? He first loved us. So maybe this is the week where you will say, Lord, this week I want to know Your love for me more deeply, more profoundly. I want to be overwhelmed with Your love for me. Way beyond an an intellectual ascent that He died for me on the cross. You know what I mean? Way beyond John 3.16. I encourage you, sit down this week sometime and may your prayer be, I want to be completely overwhelmed, engulfed with God's love for me. See what that does. See what that does. Okay. And then he says this, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We talked about the Apostle Paul. What was his name before he came to know Jesus? Saul. He was the persecutor who became the pastor preacher, right? And we saw in Galatians that this persecutor of the church named Saul met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He comes to Jesus and then he does something according to Galatians. What does he do for three years? He went out to Arabia, which means desert. He got away for three years. And in that three years, they don't know exactly what he did, but a lot of it was renewing his mind. See, he had been raised. He was like top of his class as a Pharisee. He knew all the traditions. He was living by the law. He was like the man. He meets Jesus, and he feels the need for three years to get away and go, time out, time out, time out. What what does this relationship with Jesus mean now? And he came back radically changed. See, a lot of us, we might have come to know Jesus, and then we started to try to fit Jesus into our life. Oh, yeah, I got saved. Now, Jesus, I have a spot reserved for you in my plan. So I'm going to keep moving on my plan, but Jesus is now a part of my plan. And a lot of us have just decided that Jesus has a little compartment and a seat, and, but we have our plan. And Jesus, just sit there. And when I need you, I'll contact you. But until then, don't rock the boat. Lord and Savior Jesus, God. The Apostle Paul was thinking he was serving God. He has a come to Jesus moment, literally. And he says, no, 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 no. 
for three years I'm going to get away because I realize now I'm supposed to be a part of His plan. I'm supposed to be a part of His plan. And maybe Holy Week, it's not three years away, maybe you're going to carve out a week and you're going to say, Lord, have I been just trying to fit you into my plan? Or, oh, I'm supposed to be part of your plan. When you said, follow me, you meant follow me. (laughs) Where are we going? Follow me. How long are we going to be? Follow me. Oh, you mean it's on your terms. Yeah. Remember, we've talked about the word covenant. And Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And it's a very important word, right? When you come to know Jesus, you enter into a covenant relationship. And there's a very key word. It begins with a D. What is it? Diatheke. Everyone say diatheke. There's two types of covenants in the Bible. There's diatheke, which is greater to lesser. And then there's suntheke, which is peer to peer. So a suntheke is like a treaty. Scott and I are going to enter a covenant under Suntaki. We're going to negotiate. We're going to agree on terms. We sign a covenant, that's Suntaki. Versus, I'm the king. You're the peon, okay. (laughs) We're going to enter a covenant. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. Here are my terms. Scott? The only option you have is to agree to my terms or not. We're not negotiating. That's diatheke. When you put your faith in Christ, whose terms was it on? Think, of, think, about, think about Scripture. Let me put it in scriptural context. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have... Who's setting the terms? See, we hear that through diatheke now. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Diatheke or suntheke? Diatheke. Jesus is telling you. Here's the terms of salvation. We are saved by grace through faith, not by by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That's diatheke. You see? Many of you came to Christ without even knowing that you simply submitted to His terms. You get it? You came. God said, hey, you want salvation through Jesus? Here are the terms. Agree to it or not. If you are a believer, you said, okay, diatheke, I submit, I accept your terms. The reason this church isn't filled and the reason why there's hundreds and thousands of people still in this valley is they don't like diatheke. They're real clear on God's terms. They just reject it. You can either accept His terms or reject His terms. On the front end. Now, if you do that and you enter into a diatheke covenant for salvation, what do you think the covenant is supposed to be during sanctification? Diatheke or suntheke? Say it with a smile. Diatheke! Come on, say it, Scotty. Diatheke! It's still on whose terms? His! 
But see, after we get saved and we begin to walk with Jesus, we want to turn diatheke into what? Suntheke. We read a passage of Scripture and we want to negotiate. I don't know about that one, Lord. This forgiving others as Christ forgave me thing. Let's negotiate that one. Because you know what I've been through. And that person drives me crazy Monday through Friday. You cannot really mean for me to forgive her as Christ loved the church. No, that's... Are we go soon takey. Let's do a soon takey. Right? Huh? We hear God's Word, and we might feel conviction, and we might not even like it. And right away we want to turn it into a soon takey. And we want to negotiate. Or we excuse it. Oh, God... God, I've just always been that way. God knows. God knows. I've just been that way my whole life. Oh, that's my thorn. God, that's just my thorn. God knows that's my thorn. Oh, that's my cross. It's just my cross I have to bear. God knows. God knows. What are we doing? We're trying to turn diatheke into suntheke in a lot of different ways. Right? And, 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 and it's very important in, in, in metamorphosis and what we're going to see. Because what does Paul say? He came back and he says, we are convinced. He came back convinced of God's truth. And that, that conviction, that settledness of God's truth, that, that cost Paul. He was whipped 39 times, imprisoned, right? He suffered great persecution because when he went away and settled issues and came back on God's terms and walked by faith, it cost him something. It cost him something. And we saw last week, if you look in your notes there, this, this word conviction. And we asked ourselves, do you just have a bunch of beliefs? Or do you have convictions? See, if I were to ask you, hey, do you believe in this? 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 You probably have a list of beliefs. And I'm not doubting your sincerity. But, does that list of beliefs equal your convictions? All right? Look at the definition. To have convictions is to be thoroughly convinced that something is true. A conviction goes beyond having a personal preference about something. It goes deeper than a subjective opinion. Having convictions is being so thoroughly convinced that something is absolutely true that you take a stand for it regardless of the consequences. What are your convictions this morning? Now, if I were to ask you, how many believe this is the Word of God? How many believe this is truth? How many believe this should be the authority? Is that your conviction? Hmm? Right? It's, it's, it's a real-life question. It's a real-life question because if you've been in the church for any length of time, if you read our statement of faith, if you've been to VBS or Sunday school, you've got a whole long list of beliefs. If you're a Christian, this is what you believe. But is it your conviction? Your conviction. Now, we're talking about a deeply held belief. So there was a little bit of confusion I heard. We're not talking about being convicted. We're not talking about being convicted, meaning feeling guilt or remorse about sin or some error in your life. That's, whole, that's a different sense of conviction. What we're talking about now is what are your convictions, your deeply held beliefs, things you've driven the stake in the ground, and you're like, this 
is where I stand. I can do nothing else. What are your convictions? And see, it's really important because the state of our country and the world with the gray shrinking, you're going to have to be real clear on what your convictions are. Because when the gray area in our culture was really big, we could kind of skate through as the church with just believing because the culture sort of went along with our belief structure. Now that the culture as a whole is sort of opposed to our belief structure and the wiggle room is shrinking very quickly, it's really becoming important for us to define our convictions because the truth is, it may cost you and me something very soon in this country to have a conviction about Jesus Christ and who He is, to have a conviction that this is the authoritative, inerrant, truthful Word of God, it might actually start to cost us something very powerful, very very costly. So we have to take the time to really say, what are my convictions, Lord? What are my convictions, right? And we saw last week, turn to John 17, 17, we began looking at some core convictions. If we're going to have a renewed mind, we have to have some core convictions. I'm going to start looking at them with just a quick review. John 17, 17. All right, if we're going to have a renewed mind, one of our foundational convictions, something we have to drive the stake in the ground, is that God's Word is truth. John 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify, set them apart, your believers, by the truth. Your Word is what? Truth. Whew. Now, for those of you who've been in the church, and depending on your generation, that's just like a no-brainer. Like, oh, really, Pastor? What's I got bang, done. And last week we said, okay, let's pause a little bit because we live in a culture that's been labeled as, described as postmodern. Many of you have no problem with absolute truth. Many of you have no problem with objective, rational, logical truth. Now, yeah, it's in God's Word. That is not the culture you and I live in. We live in a postmodern culture where truth is what we call subjective. Subjective. Truth is now self-based. And it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. And you have to be careful because it's even in the church. It's even in the church. Here are some ways that postmodern subjective truth impacts our culture and has bled into the church. There's a thing called pragmatism. Pragmatism. If it works, it's right. If it works, it's right. There's a lot of people that that's, that's how they define truth. Well, it's working for me. It's working. Must be true. Must be right. Because it works. Right? There's another one. Feelings. Hey, it feels good. If it feels good, it must be right. And we, we did this survey. We'll do it again. How many of you didn't, or not, not today, but in the past, have not felt like coming to church? Right? See, the world says, well, but it's, it's, truth is feelings-based. If it feels good. Right? So there's pragmatism. If it works, then it's right. 
feelings. Oh, if, I, if, it, if, I, if it feels good, it must be right. Right? There's another one. If I accept it, it's relativism. Well, Diana, that's your truth. But my truth is, is defined by what I accept. Right? So in our culture, truth is no longer objective, absolute, rational. It's pretty much subjective and self-centered. What works for me, what feels good to me, what I accept, that is now truth. Right? And why is that, why is that a scary thing? Because when that seeps into a church, the church as a whole can go that way. Because now the church, a church is no longer guided and anchored by this. It's now personal opinion and preference. See, as a whole, our culture, we live in a culture where truth is defined by personal preference and opinion. Well, that's just your opinion. That's just your opinion. That's just your preference. And our culture has put religion, spirituality, whatever you want, religion is just one of many preferences. And that, that's, that's a challenge. Because one of the convictions you and I have to settle is what is truth. And I don't know if you thought about that when you got up this morning. <laughs> Honey, today I'm going to ponder truth and my source of truth and my conviction regarding truth. Because here's the thing. If you don't settle it, you're going to be tossed to and fro by this culture. You're going to be double-minded. If you want stability and you want strength and you want focus and consistency, one of the core convictions you have to settle is what is truth? And where do you find it? Where do you find it? you got to settle that conviction, Right? Because without it, you go into religious pluralism and all roads lead to God. So let me put it real clear just so we understand. Culture says all roads lead to God. John fourteen six, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Do you see? There's no wiggle room. All roads lead to God. I'm the only way, says Jesus. The answer to where you land on that goes back to how you view truth and where you look for truth and where you stand on truth. Right? So you've got to settle that. We talked about that last week. The second part, turn to Second Timothy, as we move forward into another foundational conviction, Second Timothy 3.16 very familiar to many of us. Very, very familiar. So many of you raised your hand when I said this is God's Word, it's truth, right? Inerrant, infallible, everything we stand for here, right? Second Timothy 3.16 All right. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How many of you here would attest that that's a conviction of your heart? All Scripture is God-breathed 
Right? Useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good. How many are just like, yeah, that's me. Right? That's me. Right? Is it? We're going to walk through a little bit because Palm Sunday, as I was thinking about Palm Sunday and convictions and everything like that, look at that verse there. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed. Amen to that? And is useful. Amen? All right, if that's a conviction of your heart, just say amen. And is useful for teaching. Okay, so many of us have grown up and you come to church to be what? Taught. You come to Wednesday night to be taught. You go to Wednesday, uh, Wednesday, uh, Monday Bible study to be taught. So in that verse, what punctuation mark is after teaching? A period or a comma? Oh, no. It's a comma. See, many of us have inadvertently slid into, hey, yeah, all Scripture is God-breathing. He's useful for teaching, period. Let's go home. Because I'm going to church and I'm going to be taught. And I'm going to send my kids to VBS and they're going to be taught. Hmm. What's the next word? Oh, rebuke. I didn't hear much of an amen on that one. How many think rebuking is good for the person next to you, but not necessary for you? Right? Right? Here's the thing. If we're going to have a renewed mind, our conviction has to include the entire verse. Amen? Okay, hang with me here. Here we go. All Scripture is God-breathed. Amen? And is useful for teaching, rebuking, (laughs) you guys, correcting, right? Training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Rebuking. One of the reasons, and you've heard me use this analogy before, you want to be in metamorphosis. I don't doubt any of you want to be transformed into a caterpillar. I don't doubt that at all. Some of you, we talked about, you're stuck in neutral. You're doing a lot. Ring, ring, church, ring, serving, ring, right? Giving, ring. Your love's happening, but you're not moving. You're stuck in neutral. Why are you stuck in neutral? Because you got to shift into rebuking. That, that's, what, that's what that R stands for on your card next time. Yeah, every time you go in reverse, think of rebuke. Whoa, got to back up. Some of us are stuck. We've plateaued because we emphasize teaching and we de-emphasize rebuking. The teaching leads to, it's designed to bring out reproof or rebuke. Now, what does that even mean? That in the, in the simplest form, to reprove, reproof or rebuking is to shed light on something and expose error. See, it's a very strong word and it's a very powerful word because when we, when we, how many of you when I say rebuke, you get this picture of, of somebody without your permission getting in your face. Right? Scott, the Lord has put on my heart to rebuke you, brother. Thanks, Scott. You know, I mean, how many of us go, thanks, brother. Can you rebuke me every day? You know? For some reason, rebuke has not been received very positively in the Christian community. And yet, 
If you emphasize teaching and you completely ignore rebuking, you're going to be stuck. The teaching is designed to shed light of reproof. The teaching is designed to show you and me errors of thought, conduct, beliefs. Right? It's just like the mirror. How many of you had a mirror today that showed your imperfections before you left the house? How many were thankful for the mirror? Right? We're thankful. A mirror is a good thing. We appreciate the mirror showing us our imperfections. Reproof is God showing us our imperfections. That's all it is. We have to change our heart, our, our, our emotion towards reproof, reproof and rebuke. It's kind of like this. You ever do this game with the black light? Right here's a black light. How many of you have ever, like, you can't really do it with that, but you put it up to your shirt and you see all the stuff. You're like, oh, man, my shirt looked clean. And then you put it up and you see all the lint and everything like that, right? Or you've seen, like, when they do hotel rooms and they do the black light, you're like, Ugh! right? Or an airplane seat, Ugh! right? I didn't see all that stuff to my, to my naked eye, but they put the black light up. And what does it do? Exposes things that we don't see. Well, God's Word, when it comes to reproof or rebuke, it's like a spiritual black light. In love. Because He loves us. The Bible says He disciplines those He loves as a father. In His love, Lois, He puts His black light. And He wants to show us. He wants to expose things to us that, quite honestly, we're blind to or we ignore, or we rationalize, or we excuse. And he says, no, I'm going to teach you. And the point of the teaching is to expose things in your life, reproof, and keep going. What's after reproof in that verse? Correcting. He doesn't just point it out and make you feel bad. He wants you to correct it. Correct it. How many of you have ever helped your child learn a new skill? Right? How many of you ever had a child who didn't get it right the first time? Anyone? Now, what did you do? Well, blew it again. Try it. How many of you stood there and, and just let them feel bad and, and mocked them and made them feel horrible because they didn't get it the first time? How many of you, when they didn't get it right, got right down there and showed them and wanted to correct them? This is the way you do it. You see, God wants to teach us to expose where we're off, error in our beliefs, conduct, and then He wants to correct us. He wants to correct us. <sighs> How many of you would love to have like the perfect mentor? who loved you, affirmed you, told you like it was, but you received their correction in a very positive way. Who would love that? Right? Even in bowling, right? Do you have a coach? You would hope that a coach in bowling would be the kind that says, hey, you know what, try this, affirm you, tell you what you did wrong, but help you, and you would grow in your skill, in your expertise, because the coach was reproving you, showing you your errors, but then correcting it. That's what God wants to do. That's what God wants to do. Right? Turn to Matthew 16. And as I was thinking of Palm Sunday, 
I thought of this passage that we looked at in, turn, in light of reproof, being reproofed, being shown error, right? Matthew 16, 21. says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. What week is he describing? This week. This is Jesus, who's the ultimate truth teller. He is truth. Telling his disciples the truth about what is about to happen this week. Right? Look what happens. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So, Jesus tells his boys the truth about what's about to happen. Peter doesn't like it because he has a whole different view of Messiah. He doesn't want that to happen to Jesus. He gets in Jesus' face and says, That's not going to happen to you. And Jesus corrects him in a very powerful way. Get behind me. He, he calls him out. You're wrong. He didn't say, oh, you know, Peter, you're right. That's your opinion. It's just a matter of preference. I get it. Yeah, that's good, Pete. Postmodern Pete. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I don't have to. Yeah, I don't have to. Even though the Father said it's going, but I get it, Pete. Postmodern Pete. Nah, it's your opinion. It's your preference. It doesn't feel good to you, Pete. See? It didn't feel good to Pete. It's not going to happen, Jesus. It doesn't feel good to me. It doesn't work for me. What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. It's going to happen. It was an issue of truth. And Peter was wrong. Was wrong. How many of you and me don't like to be wrong? How many of you are sitting next to someone who doesn't like to be wrong? How many of you know you're right and are just waiting for them to get that? How many of you have known you were wrong, dead wrong, and refused to admit that you were wrong to that person because you could not lose face? Glenn is raising his wife's hand before her. I have counseling at 2 o'clock. I'm open. Peter was wrong, and Jesus says, you're wrong. This is going to happen. He called him out. He reproved. There was reproof. It was correction. Turn to, look at Matthew 21. Turn to Matthew 21. Verse 1. Matthew 21, 1. Right? As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with their colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you on a gentle, to you gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, 
while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Very familiar passage, right? The people were expecting a Messiah, but a different Messiah. A political, military Messiah to free them from Roman tyranny. Right? That's what the people were shouting about. They thought that Jesus was coming as a political, military Messiah. They should have known, based on that in verse 4, when he came on a donkey, that they were off. Because if he was a political, military Messiah in Revelation, he would have come on a horse. A donkey was a sign of peace. Okay? So there were some clues that Jesus was giving, but the people missed. They were wrong. They were wrong. And then look at verse 11. The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. They thought he was just a prophet, a religious guy. So some thought he was a military political figure. Woohoo! Others thought, oh, this is that prophet. This is that religious guy, Jesus. A whole lot of people on that Palm Sunday were wrong. And as I was thinking about that this morning for us, in light of transformation and, and renewing of our minds, and in light of reproof and rebuke, what do you do when you're wrong? How do you handle it? Are you even open to correction? Are you even open to it any longer in your life? Or as an adult, or as someone who's been a believer for X number of years, you're kind of past the correcting stage, and now it's just you slid into teaching and learning. What do we do when we're confronted with reproof? And quite honestly, we're wrong. We're wrong. Maybe it's something, even a, a biblical teaching. One of the things that when Bill was teaching on heaven and hell, we would sit here and he would go through the Bible, what the Bible teaches about it, and then someone raised their hand, you know what? I always heard that hell was this. Some of you remember that. And another person, I always heard that heaven was this, and it didn't line up with the Bible. And they were, it was a challenge because they had carried these erroneous beliefs for years. And they never stacked it up against scripture what do you and I do when we're wrong right Proverbs 623 I love this it says for the command their command is a lamp and their instruction is a light their corrective discipline is the way to life some of us are stuck in neutral we're not in that transformation because <sighs> we quite frankly, disregard correction. We just disregard it. We ignore it. We excuse it. When, when God's Word speaks to my heart about an issue in my life that I don't particularly care for or that I'm wrong, you know what we can do? And this is very subtle. Catch this. Oh, that's a good one. 
I'll have to remember that and share that with so-and-so. We have become experts at very subtly sliding that off to the side when all along God wants to speak to our heart and correct us. He's reproving us and He wants to correct us, meaning He wants a literal change of mind and change of behavior, but we slide into teaching mode. Oh, huh, never thought of it that way. Take a note. What do you do when you're wrong? What are we supposed to do? Because I know in the flesh, we just want to rear up, don't we? We want to excuse. We want to rationalize. We want to explain it away. When all along, God's like, no, I, I, want, I want you to be in transformation. Therefore, I'm going to give you the black light of my truth. And I'm going to show you something you've been blind to. We all have blind sides. And I'm even going to use that person sitting next to you to share my word with you. So turn to the person next to you and smile at them because God's going to use them at some point. <laughs> and if you're that person, you just say, I'm just the messenger. <laughs> I'm just the messenger. We're not talking about being someone's Holy Spirit in your own opinion. We're talking about speaking God's truth to someone in love. Amen? But what are you going to do when that happens? Are you going to receive it, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable or useful for what? Teaching, revealing, correcting, right? My word, I mean, you've got to embrace it. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training. You've got, you got to embrace it all. And then it will open you up to letting God speak to you through other people based on His Word. Amen? You'll be more open. And when you receive correction, to receive it, change your mind about it, change your behavior, watch what happens. You get, you get back into, you start moving. See, metamorphosis requires change. For that caterpillar and that chrysalis to come out, right, Robert? Change had to happen. If we're going to change, we've got to receive correction. And we've got to do something about it. Not just receive it, but then what? Correct it. Not just in that. See, here's what I've seen is in, in 25 years of ministry. If we're not careful, a lot of believers, myself included, when God brings conviction or shows us something wrong in our heart, you know what we do? We don't repent, which means a change of mind and behavior. We have remorse. So God shows you something that's off, that's not in line with his will or his word. And instead of repenting of it, instead of changing your mind about it, instead of lining up your thoughts and your behavior with scripture, what do we do? We keep doing it, but we just now have remorse and guilt and we feel bad. And there's a whole lot of Christians who aren't in metamorphosis because they define metamorphosis as, oh yeah, go to church and the pastor's just going to add another brick about something else you're not doing right. And I'm in metamorphosis because my bag of remorse is a lot bigger than it has been. Is that what we're supposed to do as believers? Come to church, study the Bible, and just add remorse 
to our bag. Is that what this is all about? Is that why you're here? No. No, 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 no. In metamorphosis, God speaks truth through His Word. We are taught. His Word shines correction, reproof, and correction. When we repent of that behavior, we take a step in metamorphosis. It's the repenting. It's the change. What is repentance? We talked about it a lot last year. It's just a change of mind. Lining your mind up with this. And then your life in line with this. If you will obey God's correction in one area of your life, watch what starts to happen. One area of your life in 2016. I'm not talking a complete renovation here. If God is showing you one area of your life and He's saying, hey, you know, you've been doing this for years and years and years and you've got a lot of remorse about this area and you're carrying a lot of guilt about this, why don't in 2016 you repent of it and just walk by faith according to this? Watch what happens. It's your choice. It's my choice. Right? Remember in Ephesus, he told the church at Ephesus, hey, you guys are doing a lot, but you left your first love. I want you to repent. Same thing at Laodicea. Hey, you guys are spiritually comfortable there. You're lukewarm. Repent. See, the key word is repentance. What is repentance? A change of mind. Change your mind to match this. And then act obediently in the power of the Holy Spirit and watch what happens. Watch what happens. So on Palm Sunday, there was a lot of people that were wrong. Peter was wrong back in Matthew 16. What area in your life, what area in my life is God saying, you're wrong. You need to change. You need correction. Confess it. Repent. And then what? Receive His forgiveness. And what? Walk in newness of life. Amen? It's a joyful thing. It's a joy- how many of you remember learning how to drive? How many of you were horrible when you began? How many of you kept your eyes on the prize because you wanted the license and you were going to hang in there? Right? There was a goal. And you were in. Eh, how many of you learned how to stick, drive stick shift? Remember those days? <laughs> clutch, clutch, clutch! Right? And then, but you wanted to get to that goal. You wanted to learn how to drive a stick shift car. So you hung in there and you worked and you corrected and you figured out, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? What do I have to do right? What do I have to do right? And so there was a putting off and a putting on until finally you got it and you went up that first incline. Woo! And then you stalled, right? (laughs) It's the same thing, guys. God corrects and disciplines us because he what? loves us. It's love. It really is. So when correction comes, I want to encourage you to take a deep breath and receive it. Receive it. Very early in ministry, I was just a young youth pastor with, I think we just had Layla as our oldest. And I was consumed with ministry and I was so excited and I was spending hours at church and hours with the youth group. I came home one night and my wife wasn't too happy looking. And we had a talk. And she shared with me that in her perspective with a new child and everything going on, 
it might be a bit much what I'm doing out there. And at that very moment, I had to make a choice. I could, ah, oh, what are you talking about? This is God's work. You're wrong. I'm, I'm ministering. I'm a pastor. I'm, I, I gotta go meet all the kids. I could have, I could have copped that attitude and told her just to get with the program. I would not be here. <laughs> or I could, re- I, I, I decided to sit there. I'm like, and I remember sitting there, and I, you know, I went through all the flesh. I'm gonna be honest. I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. So when I calmed down, I said to her, it's kind of a lot, huh? She goes, yeah. And I understood she wasn't trying to ruin my life. She wasn't trying, she was just lovingly trying to help me get a perspective on something. Because I had been blinded and I was lost and so focused on something else, I was blinded to my family and what was happening. And I needed that correction. And I needed to acknowledge it. And then I needed to make change. And I appreciate her speaking that truth. Because like I said, I don't know where we would have gone. A whole lot of pastors end up divorced and out of ministry just because they burn out their families. So I'm not even saying I would even be here. But for her saying that. So I understand, you know, sometimes when people bring correction in love, man, you just want to rear up and you just want (sighs) to... Sometimes you just got to settle down in the power of the Holy Spirit and say, okay, Lord, what are you saying to me through this person? What are you saying to me through this person, through your word? You receive the correction. You can repent of it. Oh, Lord, forgive me. Ask forgiveness from people you need to. And then the good news is, correct it. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. The band, you guys can come on up. Lord, thank you. That you give us your word and it teaches us. But it teaches us with a specific intent. To reveal things in our life that need to be corrected. And as we sit here this morning, is there something in my life, Lord, that is not in line with your word? Is there something in my life, quite honestly, that's sinful, that is in error, that is wrong in light of Scripture, in light of Scripture. And Father, I receive that correction now. I receive that reproof, that rebuke from You. And I repent and ask Your forgiveness. And I want to make corrections. I just want to make corrections moving forward. As I leave here, I want to make corrections. That's all. In the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we prepare for communion, we're just reminded on this Holy Week that Jesus, You love us so much. And at some point in our life as believers, we made a correction about You. We understood we were sinners in need of a Savior. We understood, Jesus, You are Lord. You died for our sins. We repented and this morning we take communion in remembrance of you Jesus thankful that through your Holy Spirit you opened our eyes to the truth 
we were lost and now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. And we take this communion now just in remembrance and as we kick off the Holy Week. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for loving us.